This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Sometimes on this show, we like to put a spotlight on a person who's done something special in the music industry. On today's show, we talk to Mark Robinson, a musician who started his own record label while he was still in high school back in 1984. Called Teen Beat Records, Mark's label mainly documented the scene in and around Washington, D.C., and, along with Discord Records, preserve some of the best music from that era. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Since 2002, Merch Table has operated and managed online stores for hundreds of successful musicians, record labels, comedians, artists, and small businesses. Big or small, set up shop today by visiting merchtable.com. Today, we talk to Mark Robinson and also hear from Ian Mackay of Discord Records about his memories of how Teen Beat got started. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. We're talking to Ian Mackay of Discord Records. Ian, welcome to the future of what. Thank you. So today we are talking about Mark Robinson, musician extraordinaire. And I wanted to talk to you because when I was interviewing Mark, he talked about how when he got Teen Beat started and when he was a young musician, he really looked up to Discord. And I know that he wrote you a letter. Yes. And so I also know that you happen to have that letter. I do. Yeah, I do. I had actually scanned it and sent it to him recently within the last year. I found it in my archives and scanned it and sent it to him. And I really, I really want him to give it a number, like, you know, the team beat numbering thing. But I don't know if he's ever, I don't know if he's agreed to it. But it's a pretty great letter. Did he tell you about it? No, but you told me about it. Yeah, yeah. So I want to hear about it. Yeah, it was pretty great. It was kind of came out of nowhere. Like I was really surprised to come across it. And it says, basically, I think this is from 1984, 85, I reckon. And he says, yeah, 785, July 85. He says, I'm in a band in Arlington called Unrest. We're not exactly the most popular band in Arlington, obviously. Unrest had played nine live shows, mostly at parties, and the Wakefield High School talent show. Now, most of the members of the band are going off to college, so we're interested in putting out a 7-inch EP record. We've already released a cassette recorded at home with two mics hooked up to a stereo, Team Beat Records, and I've sold about 60 of the tapes, most of them at school. I sold about 10 of them to three record stores in New York City when I went there. Could you please tell me some helpful hints about the record business? I'll let you know things such as where to record, press the records, print the covers, how to distribute. Hopefully the band can play reunion gigs during vacations. Thank you for your time. Sincerely, Mark Robinson. I guess he would have been, I'm trying to think how old he would have been at that time. I guess well, he was in high school. Oh, yeah. I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, he would have been in high school. Yeah, he was a young kid. I mean, he was really, I think he was shocked when it reappeared. Also, I think, let me see, I think it's on the back of a, oh, it's on the back of a government issue flyer. <laughs> I recall. Hold on, let me see if I can find it. It's so funny. That's so cool. It was a government-issued TSOL naked ray gun and serial killer flyer from oh June 20th, 85. It's written on the back of that flyer. That's amazing. That yep. is amazing. Pretty funny. And he lived 
not that far from where Discord House is. Discord House is in Arlington, Virginia, which is just across the Potomac River from Washington. It's about you know, a five-minute drive into town, but it's just across the river and sort of very culturally very different. We moved out here in 1981, you know, the bunch of D.C. punk kids who had to get out of their houses, and we needed a place that we could practice mm-hmm. that wasn't attached. And so we moved to Arlington, but we didn't really know any Arlington people. Mark was living, you know, I never knew him out here at all. My first recollection of Mark really is more connected with there's a group house on S Street in the Bertolith neighborhood of Washington. And it was people like Amy Pickering, who was worked for Discord for many years and was a singer of Fire Party. And Lydia Ely was living there, I think. She worked on the band DC book and was just a really involved punk, very good friend. And Molly Burnham, it was all women living in that house. And I, my recollection is meeting Mark there the first time, that he was just this, a kid who... You know, and his manner, have you ever met Mark before? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So his manner, at first, he's a little aloof. He's a little aloof. So, like, I think that, you know, at the time, I think I thought he probably didn't like me or something <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. He was much He's younger than me. Not a lot younger, but, you know, at the time, he was, but he just seemed a little aloof. And I thought, oh, he just doesn't like me, which was not uncommon. There were a lot of people in the <laughs> punk scene who would take an attitude with me. But it wasn't like we were unpleasant with each other. I just, it seemed like, I think mostly he was just probably shy. Yeah. But I didn't, you know, I was really unaware of what was going on in the teen beat world. I knew other people, you know, like Ginny Toomey and Simple Machined Records. And, you know, they were more connected to teen beat. They knew, they knew Mark and they were sort of, they were also, ran. they had a label that ran out of a house in Arlington as well. And Ginny and Kristen. It was interesting. There was a period of time where we had Simple Machines and we had Teen Beat and Discord and Slow Dime and there was a handful of other labels here that were, they all had their own sort of, yeah, they had their own thing, which I just thought was so cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. People keep asking me about scenes in America and I'm like, I feel like scenes in America are kind of making a comeback. I think the internet kind of flattened everything for a minute. Definitely. But now I feel like we're coming back to scenes because people are realizing that actually, you know, the way that you really have a real music career is you make friends in bands and you play with those bands and everybody, you know, gets together and it's it's definitely more local. You know, you can't just put your music out on the internet and sit home and like wait for something to happen. You actually have to make something happen. But I love the, you know, I love talking about the old scenes because I really feel like those were the days, you know, that's that's how we made it happen in all these different places. Well, punk at that time, especially punk, was super regional to begin with. Totally. That was, you know, and I think that was sort of the, the idea that, you know, we read about punk in England and we read about punk in New York, but if we wanted to have anything punk here, we better just form a band. You right. know? And that was, that was really it. It was just like, then it was like, oh, now we got something to do. Yeah. Let's keep doing it so we have something to do for now on. Yep. And I think that the regionality, as you can imagine, with like Discord, I mean, it was completely deliberate to never put out anything but DC area bands. It was like, there was just the idea it was like to keep it, to stick to the original plan, which was to document what was happening here. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that was sort of the, the, really the emphasis was on the sort of the regionality of, of the, of the situation. Exactly. So I thought it was super cool when Mark came along and started picking up all these kind of weird sort of side, these little smaller weird projects and all of his, you know, he just had a, a different aesthetic and it was, it was great. And then Brendan and Guy were got to be pretty tight with Mark. And every year they would have these, he would have the, the Team Beat Banquet 
at this Chinese restaurant not far from here, actually just five or six blocks up the road from here. And they would go every year and I never got invited. I always felt like, <laughs> man, you know, but I've never, I actually once asked Mark, I said, why didn't you ever, why didn't you invite me? I don't remember what he said, but I mean, the thing is, it's, I really, I, I really respect the guy. I think he's, he's super driven. He's really visionary and he's a, his aesthetic is pretty incredible. Like his, his, his ideas about, you know, the way he approaches things, he's, He's, I think he's very pragmatic, but he also is really, he likes beauty and he makes beautiful things, Yeah, which I really appreciate. And, you know, I, I like, he's been making these little films recently, which I think are really beautiful. There's studies and he's just a fascinating guy. Yeah. Really interesting fellow. Yeah, absolutely. And have you seen his little duo with his wife that they're touring with? I've not, but I, I also really love her too. Evelyn's great. It's very cool. It's uh, it's really different and also very beautiful, like you said. I think it's a. Uh... Did they come out there? They did. They came out here wow. and played, and that's when I got a chance to interview him, which was awesome. He's never stopped, and he's and he does. You know, he continues to work away. I mean, it's interesting when he moved to Cambridge. It seemed so odd, you know, to have them leave. Right. Such a fixture here. Yeah. And he seemed, Arlington seemed like such a incredibly important part of who he was, you know, like there's so many Arlington references. And so it was really strange when he moved up there. I actually don't know why he moved up there. Did he go up there for work? Maybe he did. I don't, I don't know. know why he went up there. Yeah. But that was that. Yeah. You Isn't know? that strange how things just change Yeah. overnight like that? I think that he and I have become, over the years, we've had more of a, in some ways, we've had more contact since he went to Cambridge. We don't, you know, we don't see a lot of each other, but I can say that whenever I see him, I'm always... It's always a good day. <laughs> so you'll get invited to the Teen Beat Banquet now. I don't think I will actually. I don't. I don't think they still <laughs> have so them, but funny. I don't think. I think at this point it would be it would it would mess with the order of you know the universe, the order of the yeah, stars. Totally. Yeah. Best of all, I just don't. I have no idea. Maybe things got too. Maybe they got too ribald or something. That's funny. Oh my gosh. I have no idea. You know, we did some shows with him too. I mean, obviously we played with Unrest, and we also played Air Miami and uh, Evelyn's Band. Blast off country style. That's a pretty great. Yeah, they are great. They they play this at the show in um, Fugazi. That is, they play this in Knoxville, Tennessee. And it was like one of the most. In fact, it might be the show. It's in the instrument movie. There's like, this whole crazy show in Knoxville where we are have fighting the fans, and I throw a guy out, you know, <laughs> for spitting in my face and all this stuff. And I think they opened for that night. Wow, which is pretty great. Yeah. you know, they're they're great. They're just super nice people and cool band. And I thought, you know. There was one other band, Air Miami and Unrest, but there's a third one, I think, that he did, which is escaping me at the moment. But all of his bands are sort of, oh, it's Flynn Flon. That's what it was. Oh, that's right. Flynn Flon. Right, Flynn yeah. Flon. I had to look at my... I have a whole stack of Team Beat records on the shelf here that I can, I can quickly... I can look at. I also don't know how many, record, how many records they put out at this point. Do you have any idea? No clue. A yeah, lot. A lot. Yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot. A couple of the records I really, really love. One record that people don't ever talk about, but it's the Butch Willis and the Rocks record. Huh, yeah. But Butch Willis was a, a local, he's from here, and he's, he's a pretty crazy guy. And they were, you know, they were a band, they had a guy, a guy named Al Breon in the band, and he played throat guitar. And <laughs> okay. you can watch, there's a video of him online, actually, it's B-R-I-O-N, Breon. But he would, he had his own mic, and the whole time he would just sing while chopping his throat with his. He would make a sound while chopping his throat with his hand. So it's like ah, like that exactly, like that sound. 
But the songs are great. They're, you know, and one the first record that Mark put out is just such a great record. I don't know, I can't remember what it's called. It might just be called Butch Wilson the Rocks, but but that was the kind of thing he would always Mark I think was interested in sort of peculiarities and he would find things that he just he just was into and he would just like focus on it and put it out. Whereas I would I think Discord we were always just looking for bands who were actually like super active and able to tour and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, every every indie label has a different kind of, you know, vision for what they're trying to put together. But I've always been really impressed by Mark's vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he came down, he did it. He actually filmed, I don't, did he do, I don't know if he put it up, but he did the Discord House, I think. He did a, a little movie about Discord House. Cool. Yeah, I, I know he filmed it. I don't know if he ever put it up, but it was, it was really fun having him just come in. And he just likes little details, so he would just find some little spot. And he just set up a camera and then just shoot there's like one tiny little detail it could be like a crack in the wall or a piece of torn paper or something amazing very cool well thank you for sure. giving us your reminiscences about mark robinson and ian mckay thanks so much for being a guest today on the future of what of course
That was Unrest. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Want an even closer look at issues we talk about on the show? Our monthly newsletter will keep you informed about news, upcoming events, episodes, and more. You'll also have access to exclusive offers and behind-the-scenes looks. Sign up at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and win a future of what t-shirt. You're listening to the future of what we're talking to Mark Robinson of teen beat records. Mark, welcome to the future of what? Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you. Cool. Yay. <laughs> so this is a show about the music business. Okay. So of course I want to talk to you. I mean, you're, you're an interesting person in many ways, not only because you're a musician who's been in very cool, interesting bands, but also because you run a record label. Mm-hmm. You are an artist-owned record label. Right. There are several of those in the world, but it, it puts you in a unique position because I feel like, you know, artist-owned labels can kind of relate to artists. Right, definitely. Very much. So tell me what it's been like for you to run an artist-owned record label. It's fun. I mean, I <laughs> mostly just do it because I love music and I love playing in bands and I love putting out records. And I mean, it just started because... Mostly I started it because I was in a band in high school and thought it would be cool to put a record out. Mm-hmm. It didn't occur to me that anyone else would ever do that. <laughs> so we would do it by ourselves. <laughs> how did you figure out how to do that? That's a good question. Where I grew up, there was a label called Discord in D.C. Sure. And they were doing it. And there were some other people that were doing it. But I figured it out. Well, we started out doing cassettes. So this is before they had those double cassette decks. Uh-huh. So we had to figure out how to hook two separate cassette decks up to record from one to the other. So we figured that out. And then our music teacher at our high school, her husband had a recording studio and he had the record pressed for us. Oh, wow. <laughs> like on vinyl and then you had yeah, a yeah, real yeah. record. Wow. Exactly. That was and exciting. Did you guys just sell it at your shows? I mean, is that sort of, that was your distro at the time? I would take, like when we were just doing cassettes, I would take cassettes around to stores and put them on consignment. I would go to New York and do the same thing, like give them three cassettes. And then I'd go back there in six months and usually the three cassettes were still there. <laughs> but I think once we had a record, we started calling distributors and we realized that distribution was a thing and you would call people up. And I think back in the day, you would just call them up and then you would describe the record over the phone uh-huh. and they would say, okay, we'll take 50 of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the good old days. It was really easy. That's amazing. Yeah. That's- <laughs> That's different from how it is now. Right. (laughs) So, I mean, you started Teen Beat in like, gosh, is it 1987? 1984. Four. Good God. So originally we just had those cassettes. Before we realized how to duplicate them, we had kind of a lending library where we just had one copy of each thing. And we'd bring them into school and people would borrow them like a lending library. Uh Uh-huh. And I think, yeah, February of 1985, we did our first like mass produced cassette. Well, not mass produced, but, you know, we made like 50 of them. Mm-hmm. And then the first record was November of 85. Wow. So, Oh my gosh. And so when did you start recording other bands? Like when did you get to the point where you found other bands that you wanted to put out? Right. That was started pretty early on. I mean, I met a friend in my like history class or something. <laughs> that I was in a band. So that kind of got me excited. I was like, oh, there's other people doing bands. And we had, I don't know, like four or five bands in high school. Like some of them had a lot of similar members and mm-hmm. a lot of overlap and things like that. And then I think we put out like maybe a record a year up until 1990. And I think that there was more money. Like we used the money that was 
made off of the first record to make the next record mm -hmm. and so on and so on. Wow. And by, I don't know, 1993, we're probably putting out like 30 records a year or something like that. Now, you, you can't have been putting out 30 records all by yourself. Yeah, it was mostly just me. But at some point... <laughs> there had to have been at least one or two other yeah, people. Yeah, there were some other people. We had like tons of interns. Oh. And we didn't advertise for interns. We didn't put out a classified ad asking for interns. But people just kind of found out about us and would contact us. And wow. so we had... Yeah, on any given day, we'd have like 10 college kids like in the office. Oh, my God. So... That's incredible. And the bands would help out, you know, if we needed to stuff seven inches. That was a big thing, folding catalogs wow. and stuffing them into seven-inch records. Right. Did that kind of keep you working with bands that also lived in the area, or did you end up working with bands from elsewhere? We mostly tried to keep it local, kind of like Discord. But I was also we were also up in New York all the time, so we did release some records by some New York bands, Dust Devils and Versus mm -hmm. were a couple. But mostly, I think the idea was to release records by people we knew mm -hmm. and have this kind of community, or right. at least that was the attempt. <laughs> well, I mean, that's how Kill Rockstar started out, too. You know, Slim was basically trying to document his local scene. Right, yeah. But then eventually it did kind of start to expand with, you know, you're looking for other, I mean, you just hear of other bands and there's someone awesome and they happen to live in Baltimore or they happen to live in Florida or whatever. Right, yeah, exactly. Or Germany. right. So that does happen. You kind of it does expand yes. in that way. <laughs> so how many people have worked for Teen Beat over the years? Like, I'm sure it's increased and decreased. Like been paid? Yeah, like been paid. One. Just you? It's not me. <laughs> Is that you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's, yeah, we had one person for like two years that was paid like an hourly wage. Wow. So my label is not a money-making thing. I mean, there, I've, you know, I guess I've been paid... Over the years, maybe like $10,000 a year or something like that. From your label. I mean, I have, you know, like the money's just sitting in the account. Like if mm -hmm. I wanted to cash it out, that's that's how much I would have been paid. Wow. So. Wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. But do you pay royalties to your bands? Of course, yeah. Yeah. And do you yeah. do that all yourself? Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that's one of those fun jobs that label owners get to right. do. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. It's a lot, of, a lot of math. It is. Do you like it? I like it. I really? really? Like, I love it. I love spreadsheets. Yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. I would say I like it, but it's, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's good when it's done. Yeah, it's good when it's done. Oh my God, it's totally, we should, we should totally talk. That's a whole other <laughs> podcast. Let's talk about how to do royalties. Oh my God. But that's interesting. And then of course you have, your bands have been on other labels. True. You haven't just, so, right. you know, Team Beat's not your only source of income. Right. So I think pretty early on we did an unrest LP and that did pretty well. And then the one of our main distributors was so excited about us that they wanted us to put records out with them. And that seemed like a good idea at the time because we didn't have money to actually print, like press up an actual LP. The, the LP that we produced was just, we just had the records pressed and then we ordered a thousand blank jackets and hand decorated them. Oh, wow. Because we didn't have the money to actually print the covers. Uh -huh. So having some other label do all that was kind of exciting at the time. Absolutely. So yeah, I think the only, I think that was the only Unrest album that was released on Teen Beat was the very first one in 1987. And then after that, yeah, we were doing other things, which is too bad in retrospect, because now you have to deal with getting rights back and mm. things like that, keeping things in print and figuring all that stuff out after the fact. But,
that was Air Miami. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it. Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to the future of what? We're talking to Mark Robinson of Teen Beat Records. So one of the biggest and craziest things that has happened in the last few years is this whole new online digital streaming world. Right. So how has that changed your business? Well, we make a lot less money. I think it's part of it. Really? Yeah. Because you're selling less physical oh, stuff. Oh, I guess because we're selling less physical stuff, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, the whole digital thing helped a lot when it started, like in 2003 around In terms then. of downloads. Yeah, in right. terms of downloads. But I feel like since it's kind of moved over to streaming, I feel like it's it's less than it was. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but not, with your, not in your case. No, in our case, the streaming is just like blowing wow. it up. Yeah, really? it's been crazy. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that's not happening. I don't know why. I wonder <laughs> why that is. That's, I mean, it could be... I don't know. How many titles do you guys have in your catalog? What what's, what are you looking at? Probably like 250 to 300, something like that. Okay. Well, our catalog is like 600, so we're mm-hmm. like twice as big, but still. I don't right. know. I right. Don't know. I mean, we have a lot of titles that probably are never listened to. <laughs> <laughs> but wouldn't that be interesting to go in and do an analysis of, of look at your Spotify plays and just like look at what's being listened to? Because we did that right. a little while ago, mm-hmm. and I was shocked that there were people listening to things that I just assumed right. no one would ever listen to. Right. But they are listening. Right. When I do the royalties, I do find out like, oh, someone has discovered this strange song by this unknown band that right. somehow is being listened to a lot. Yeah. So that's kind of odd. We did this record by a band from Vancouver, Bossa Nova, and we put the record out. Nobody bought it. Nobody reviewed it. And then a couple years later, it was like a, a discovered on Pandora. And now it's on, you know, everybody listens to it on Spotify and Apple Music. And now I, I'm paying that guy. He's like the main royalty. Recipient. Recipient from our <laughs> label. So, wow. <laughs> just That's, on this one song. And it doesn't yeah. go down. It's like consistent. This is like 10 years ago. Yeah. So he's consistently, just that one song is consistently popular. And that's why people are freaking out about playlisting right now, right, on Spotify is because that's the kind of traction that you get if you get a song on a playlist and people like it. It seems to really drive sort of this continual attention. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost like when you come to the public notice, then you stay there. Right, right. You know, it's yeah. weird. If you're like under here and nobody's ever heard of you, forget it. Exactly. Right, yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. He's made it, like that song has somehow made it above water or, yeah. you know, surfaced. Yes. that's I I often use the analogy of an ocean for the internet because yeah. I'm like, and we release records like we're dropping a rock into the ocean right. and then it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> just never to be seen again. Right. But it's also, it's interesting how that song just continues. Like, I feel like if it was in 1985 or something, it would be like massively huge for a couple months and then just completely disappear. But in this age, it just keeps on going. Yeah. And that is, I think, the power of streaming because people, it's like once it's come to attention, it stays up there. Right. In this weird algorithmic, you know, machine based (laughs) (laughs) environment that we're in. It's very strange. Right. So in terms of the business, you know, how much are you concerned with stuff like YouTube and all the things that are going on in, in the world? Like YouTube things where we're being paid for them? or where we're, Well, we're 
paid is (laughs) (laughs) questionable. Right. I mean, yeah, I I wish we could. I just, I do have nostalgia for the the 90s when we could sell a lot of physical records. Mm. But yeah, I don't know. I just kind of take it as it comes with the the YouTube and all these things. I don't know. It just, I mean, it's all pennies, it feels like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and it's it seems like hard to get your knickers in a twist about you know oh less fractions of a penny right on this level right. than right. the other level. Yeah, I think it's just because it's Google that it's so annoying. Yes, because they're just so right. rich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like dudes, throw us a bone. Right, right. So you know, you mentioned Discord. Did you guys ever end up becoming like friends with those guys? And yeah, I know those guys. They distribute. They have their own distribution, so they have distributed us for. I don't know, 20 years or something like that. Like one of our distributors. Nice. And, you know, back in the 90s, there were a few other labels. Slumberland and Simple Machines were also in the area. Right. So, yeah, I feel like we were kind of filling the whole... We were doing our own thing. That wasn't something Discord would be releasing, like in the 80s and the 90s. So we were just kind of filling that hole for the DC music scene, I think. Yeah, definitely. You guys were definitely, I mean, I think those four labels are sort of the iconic DC labels of that time. Right. What do you think about, I mean, are you still in DC or you moved? I'm in Boston. To Boston. Yeah. What's the, Boston is a weird place. (laughs) What's the Boston (laughs) music scene like? Like how's, how's it changed since Um, you've been there? Gosh, I feel like it's definitely more, DC was always about the artist and the music. And I feel like Boston, it's more like, how can we get successful? Like, mm. where is my manager? Interesting. Are we going to get signed? So Boston's like, more like LA? I think so, yeah. Oh, interesting. I mean, Berkeley School of Music is there too. So oh, there's yeah. Yeah. people that want to be professional musicians or Definitely. in town. But it's also, I mean, there's just, at least the music that I'm into, the people at the shows keep getting older and older because, you know. That's what happens that's, to us. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But, you know, there's still clubs and there's still, there's a really great group called the Boston Hassle who's putting on these, all these shows, like all over town constantly, like in basements and living rooms and clubs and all sorts of places. So there's a lot going on, but, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, it's weird, I guess. Well, I just, I feel like Boston had a scene in late, the late eighties that was, you know, quite noticeable and then kind of hasn't since then. Right. Yeah. I don't think there's, I can't think of anything Right, significant that, would, that right, came out of Boston. It's hard. Like that. That's funny. But it's like, I, I'm from New York City, and I feel like, you know, when I was in bands in the late 90s in New York, it was really similar to that. Like, we had a scene, mm-hmm. but we also had all these people who were just positive that if they played the Mercury Lounge just that one perfect <laughs> night when that A&R person was in the audience, right. like, that's all they needed to do. Right. And I feel like, you know, the advice I've been giving bands for 20 years is, get out of your hometown like you have to go on tour you have to Mm -hmm. you know that's how you create a career for yourself you you just do not just play the same club over and over right waiting for that miracle moment to happen Mm -hmm. but it is weird how some uh, certain cities just seem to have that in the culture of bands like well if i just you know we're just going to do this even like we're going to be even better at this particular club (laughs) you know we're going to play whatever what's that club in in Boston oh, called. The, um, it's like something well, There's Indian. the Middle East. The Middle East. Okay, yeah, right. the Middle East. I so, was thinking of the other place, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Middle East, <laughs> like, you know, if you just play the Middle East that on that perfect night, 
right. going to make everything right. Probably not. come true. But no, <laughs> it doesn't really work that way. Right. And LA is a lot like that too. I mean, LA is way worse because you actually do have A&R people in the audience. Right, right, right. Wow. <laughs> but you know, if you're in like Chapel Hill or some small town, I think right. they don't, they haven't had that culture ground into them as much. Yeah. So I think you're more likely to get out of town. We played, I remember we went to New York, we were constantly playing shows in New York in the late 80s, early 90s. I don't know if that really, that probably helped us. I don't know. I think it probably did. Yeah. Because, it, you know, even if you just come from, you know, down the road, you're still right. an out-of-town band, which is a whole different mystique. Exactly. You know, yeah. and that's what we found out. It's like, you know, we would go out and play shows in New Jersey and people would freak wow. out. And I'd be like, wow, <laughs> we're like, you know, 40 minutes from right. <laughs> the city. This is, this is very exciting. But, you know, it's just because you're something new, you're from somewhere else. Right. And then you start to get excited when you go on tour because it's like, oh, these people are excited to see us right? because we're from New York. Right. Woo. <laughs> right. So you're playing Dallas or something. And exactly. It's, it's all very exciting. Right. And they've, maybe they've never even heard of you, but just the fact that you're from New York. Exactly. It's exciting. Exactly. And I and it's still like that. And people, people like bands don't believe me. I'm like, really? Just get out. Get right. on the road. You'll yeah, find yeah, out. Yeah. Interesting. People want to see you, <laughs> I think. I mean, I know the live music market has gotten tougher, but. Right. So now do you still tour in your current incarnation? I, I do not really tour, no. I mean, we're, I'm playing here. Oh, yeah. But other right. than that. <laughs> but you're not like on a tour. No. Right. Are you sort of done with tour? Or would you go on tour again if something came up? Yeah, I'd go on tour. I mean, I feel like what I'm doing now is not commercial in any way. So I don't know if anyone would come and see us other than our friends. So. <laughs> <laughs> Would you do a but living room tour? Like yeah, set up I'd by your friends? Right. Yeah, we yeah. do that. That's cool. Yeah. Because a lot of people are doing that very successfully. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. I mean, I just saw John Vanderslice not that long ago in a living room. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And he was That's fantastic. Great. Yeah. It was like 50 people. It was great. Right. Yeah. And you can make a living doing that. Yeah. yeah. Well, or you can make part of a living. Let's say part of a living. Because I feel like that's... That's where we're at in the music business is right. all these pieces now. See, you're right. I mean, once upon a time, that's what people don't understand is, you know, it's like when you were selling, when we were selling albums and that was mm -hmm. a real thing, that was like a solid income stream. Right. Now you're patchworking it together. You know, you get a little bit of streaming, a little bit of, you know, some physical right. touring, you yeah. know, maybe some licensing, maybe some right. publishing, right. depending. Like licensing to films definitely kept us in business for a while too. Like, I feel like around, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, that was a big help. Yeah. Who did you have plugging you for licensing, or did you do it yourself? At some point, Unrest was courted by A&R people. So there was, like, Atlantic and Elektra, and there was a guy for, um, from Slash Records. And his roommate worked for one of these licensing companies, and so that's who was plugging us. Oh, cool. Ocean Park Music Group. Oh, sure. Yeah. We used Ocean Park for years. Yeah. Yeah. So it was nice to have that. Definitely. And then just weird stuff happens occasionally. Like I was in another band called Flynn Flon, and one of our songs was chosen to be the theme song for the Anderson Cooper show when it was first aired. Unfortunately, it only <laughs> lasted for like a couple of years. But still. And they changed it. But yeah. that was very helpful. That's some nice income. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's awesome.
was Flin Flon. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. We're talking to Mark Robinson of Teen Beat Records. So when you were being courted by major labels, like what did you think about that whole thing? I think we were just so young and not business savvy whatsoever. And we didn't have a manager. So we were thinking of, we were thinking things like, what restaurant should we have them take us to? (laughs) (laughs) that's perfect (laughs) that's pretty much what it was to us and they're like well what label is cool or what label is going to can we do a seven inch box set of our record right you know will they let us do that or you know things like that like what will they let us get away with that kind of thing so why did they never move forward? Did did you guys put the kibosh on it? Were you offered deals or how did yeah, that? Yeah, we were offered deals and we did decide to go with 4AD Records. Right. Which is still... Which is not a major. <laughs> which is not a major, but it was a major in the United States. Yes. So yes. we had to deal with all that Warner Brothers stuff. Like we ended up playing at the Warner Brothers headquarters office building in LA. We played at some weird WIA distribution warehouse in New Jersey. What? That so sounds weird, crazy. Weird things like that. How how were those shows for you? Very guys? strange. Very strange. Yeah. yeah. The, the Warner Brothers office wasn't too bad because you had, you know, people that were kind of excited about music. I feel like the warehouse, the distribution people, that was a weird show because it was like in a conference room. and you have all these just like sales people that look like they could be selling anything right yeah (laughs) yesterday i was selling toothpaste and today i'm selling this band we were technically on an indie label but but in the u.s we were essentially on a major label so i think essentially what we we were i guess got the advantages of the distribution but we didn't get the money (laughs) right because the advances were much lower Right. So right. I guess 4AD probably got all the major label advances part of that. Yeah, if there were <laughs> such a thing. Right. I don't and know. do you get statements from them? Or are they good about I do. That? We just shockingly like recouped. Like one of my 4AD bands just recouped, which wow. is shocking right. after so great. 20 years or something. I'm just always so happy when I find out that people are actually getting royalty statements because I can't tell you how many bands never see a royalty oh, statement sure. from. Right. I mean, I'm sure you've heard bands say that too. Right. It's just because to me, it's shocking because it's like such a big part of what I do. Right. And I'm kind of like, would I be the biggest jerk in the world? Yes. Right. I didn't like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, I mean, we have, I think we have like 432 payees or something. Wow. And I 
send them each a statement every quarter because I'm like, you deserve it. Wow. Even if you only made a penny. Right. You should see it. Yeah. So you're really good. See, I'm probably, I'm kind of a little bit lax because I, (laughs) I don't want to do it more than once a year, which I know is people probably want at least twice a year, but I I don't think I can handle it more than once a year. I fell into, I mean, Slim had done it four times a year, so it was already Mm -hmm. set up to to be done four times a year. Right. And I tried once to move it to two times a year and then I found I forgot how to do it. Oh, wow. Completely. Like, because it's kind of a complicated process. So doing it every three months is actually really good for me because I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember how to do this. But if it's six months later, forget it. Right. I'm like doing other things in my head and then I'm just like, oh, crap. Right. How do I do that? One time I actually did an entire royalty run and I didn't take any of the expenses out. Wow. Yeah. And I found that out. Oh, no. Like a month later. And I was like, oh, whoops. I had to like go back and do everything again. But still, it was like, everyone's like, wow, look, thanks for the check. Right. That's so funny. (laughs) Whoops. I had, yeah, someone from Discord was telling me that they accidentally overpaid a band. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was like $600. And they were like, the band was like, we're not giving that back. (laughs) (laughs) No, you can't ask anyone to give money back. There's no way. Right. You can't. If you screw up, you screw up. Right. Oh, my God. That's so funny. Yeah. That is crazy. So what else is going on for you right now? What else is going on for me? Well, I'm in a band with my wife. That's right. the, the current thing called Cotton Candy. Right. I do a lot of graphic design. That's kind of my other thing that I do. So mm-hmm. I, that's kind of actually why I got excited about the record label as well, because I was really into packaging. So like Factory Records was a big influence and 4AD and how they kind of not really prioritized design, but the design was kind of almost on the equal footing with the music. Mm-hmm. So that kind of got me excited about doing a record label. Yeah. And so when like Unrest broke up and I didn't have as much income, that's kind of what I did. I was like, well, I did these album covers. Maybe I can design other things. So I designed like a lot of book covers now. So oh. things like that. Yeah. 4AD was always really amazing with the graphic design. I mean, that was sort of right. why I even paid attention to that label for a while. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's probably why a lot of people, they just picked it up in the store because, wow, this looks amazing. What does it sound like? Exactly. And it was funny because it would be like the band inside was not necessarily represented. (laughs) I found, I found, I had like a lot of cognitive dissonance with 4AD bands in the 80s because I was Mm -hmm. just like (laughs) looking, but the sound, hmm, right, was Hmm. confusing to me. Right. Maybe they didn't do such a good job. Well, they did in one way, right? (laughs) Right. From a marketing standpoint, it was awesome from a like, you know, how it affects your brain. Right. Maybe a little different. The other th- other thing I was doing recently was scoring a video game. So that was really oh, that interesting. Is so cool. And it wasn't, I just assumed the guy wanted like little beeps and kind of synthy kind of stuff. But he, well, he's like, no, I want your guitar music. So nice. that's kind of a work in progress. Is, I, it, is it an indie video game? Yeah. It's yeah. called Home Free. It's about dogs. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> so we just did the trailer and now he's like doing all the coding and things like that. And at some point we're going to finish up the rest of the game. So we have actually done an episode on people who make video game music because oh, wow. it's so cool. Right. And it's gotten so complicated. You know, it used to be bleep, bloop, bloop. Right. <laughs> and like we licensed a couple songs to a video game uh, called Gone Home a few years ago, which was really huh. a very, very cool game with a really cool theme. And then it was set in the early 90s. So they used a couple early 90s tracks, which was like perfect for oh, the very cool. thing. But what I was been amazed about is like, I feel like, Video games have gotten completely cinematic now. I mean, they have like or- orchestras and wow. just like such lush right. sounds to go with these visuals that, I mean, the whole thing has gotten really yeah. big time. Right. <laughs> which is interesting. Right. 
And yeah. there's, there appears to be money in it too. I mean, well, exactly. Yeah. Which is yeah. Nice. Good for musicians. I mean, right. I'm always trying to think of, you know, ways to tell musicians that they can make money uh-huh. in this economy. Right. That's completely legit. You know, it's, I feel like I don't want people to feel like they're bound by the, the album cycle. Like if you're not in a band that is making a record every two years, going on tour, you know, going back in the studio and doing that, that you're like some kind of failure. Like, no, there's other ways to make money in this industry that are totally legit. Yeah. We won't be mad at you. (laughs) (laughs) And also it's really hard to actually get yourself into that album cycle these days. I mean, to be a band that's on a label, that's making records consistently, that's, that's almost the toughest thing to to do Right. right now. Yeah. It was so easy back in the old days. Well, right? It was. <laughs> we just did it. Right. We I feel didn't like, think about it. Like when we put our record out, we could have, it could have been anything. Like anybody could have put a record out, anybody, and it would just would have sold because there just wasn't that many right. records. Right. <laughs> there just wasn't that many bands and that many records out there. Exactly. I, that's, I'm so glad you brought that up. I saw some graphic many, it's several years ago now, but it was right around the time when everybody was getting like really stressed out about, you know, how many bands were coming on the market. Uh-huh. Right. And it was like, there were only a hundred bands that made it to platinum status that year. Okay. And there were 100,000 bands released, Whoa. like 100,000 albums. Wow, right. I think it might have even been fewer than 100 that made, maybe it was like 10 or something like that. It was just like this tiny number, but then the number of albums that were released in a year, and I, I think it's exponentially higher now. I'm sure. I think 100,000 in a year sounds kind of small at this point. Right. I bet it's like, <laughs> you know, 500,000. And you're just like, yeah. no human can keep up right. with the amount of music that is being made, Right. which is... I don't know. It's hard, right? It is. Like it puts us all in a really strange position in terms of this is the business because yes, it's great that people can put out music, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that the music that they put out is better. Right. There's just more of it. Right. Yeah. Like how do you, it seems like A&R is way more difficult. Totally. Than it was before. Yeah. It's like shades of mediocrity. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, wow, this is pretty okay. Right. This is pretty okay. Yeah. But it's like you're waiting for something to just be like, oh my God, it's so amazing. Right. And that's hard to find. It is. Yeah. Are you doing any A&R right now yourself? No. (laughs) You're like, no, no more records. I'm not doing it. (laughs) I do my own music and then I will release records by people who I've released records before. Right. So. Yeah. And I guess if something came along and, you know, blew my socks off or something, I would be interested but right i don't know i'm just kind of doing that same thing i was doing back in high school you know just like making music and releasing it and not really worrying worrying too much about where it's going or anything like that that's know. cool <laughs> that works if you've, you've stayed alive this long yeah it's for you well mark robinson has been such a pleasure to have you today yeah. with me so thanks for coming on the future of what thank you it's been great thanks for having me and that's our show The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Unrest, Air Miami, Flin Flon, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week.
This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.